is Actually You Are a Real Runner with Jacqueline Riccio. Today I'm really excited on the podcast. I have a special guest, Michael Bain. He is a dad, husband, lawyer, runner, and a survivor of the coronavirus. How are you doing today? I'm all right, Jacqueline. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm so excited to chat with you. Also, you're from Chicago. We're not too far from each other, so it's great to connect. I want to, before we get into everything that's happened over the last few months, I kind of want to hear a little bit more about your life as a runner. So were you always an athlete growing up? Was running always a part of your life? I I think using the term athlete is pretty generous, but um, I've been running uh, probably since high school. uh, And, you know, even prior to that, my parents got me to enter into some races when I was a, a much younger child. My mom is an avid runner. She's run double-digit marathons. She qualified for Boston. Uh, and even at the age of 65, she can still outrun me. So, you know, it's, it's easy to wow. say that she's been an inspiration for me. But um, I didn't really start doing it regularly until I moved to Chicago. I lived in River North for a while, and uh, Lakeshore was, was such a beautiful place to go run. It um, really made it a lot easier to get out there. Definitely. Uh, yeah, I've done, I've run the Chicago Marathon five times. I use the, the term run pretty loosely because I, <laughs> I I always overtrain and eventually would injure myself and have to stop training. So by the time the marathon came around, I wasn't really in running shape. But um, I still do a Tough Mudder every year. Uh, you know, I try to set personal goals. I'm never going to set any records or win my age group in anything. But, you know, um, a good, I was trying to do a 20-minute 5K a couple of years ago, came pretty close, but then I got hurt and, you know, haven't really picked it up since. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So you're definitely a runner. Oh, well, <laughs> this is a part of your life. Um, so I'm curious, you said living in Chicago and I would guess being on the lake, just kind of seeing other people doing it, that got you into the headspace of this is something that I want to do and have a part of, be a part of your life. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my my mom being a marathoner in Chicago being one of her favorite ones, I thought, well, hey, I live here now. This would be a, a thing we could run together. And, you know, um, I, I didn't get to see them as much. They're, they live in Michigan and I moved here from Michigan. And so that was really kind of the impetus that, that got me to start marathon training. But, you know, run together was more of we were running the same marathon. I mean, we, we definitely were running at, at the same pace. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, when, before all of this happened, what did running look like for you or working out, um, throughout the week? Uh, were you doing races? Um, so I was, I'm actually signed up for, you know, I've got a tough mutter in August and I was supposed to do a half marathon in September. Yeah. I don't know if those races are going to happen. Uh, I, I did the tough mutter last year. I think I did shamrock or something. Um, yeah, I mean, over the years, I'll usually do a couple a year, whether it be the Soldier, Soldier Field 10-miler, which is one of my favorites, uh, occasional half marathon. I think I'm done with the full marathons for a while, ever since I became a dad trainings. It's just not realistic for me to to do it in a way that, that I would want to. But, you know, I um, before I got sick, I was going to the gym every day. Most of my running was... You know, usually the three to five mile distance uh, because it doesn't take as long. I would do it on treadmill and uh, you know, lifting weights. So I wasn't focused quite as much on the, on the cardio, more in just overall staying in shape. And like I said, since I've become a dad uh, and moved out here, 
my commute's longer and, and my time is taken up by parenting responsibilities. Yeah. Yeah. It run training for a marathon is a second part-time job or a third part-time job if you have two other jobs. So yeah, it sounds like running became this thing. Um, that was present in your life. I talk, uh, there was a podcast on how we built this where he talked about the finite game and the infinite game and like mm-hmm. training for a race is like, cool, this finite game, there's a start and an end. And the infinite game is just kind of the things that you do day to day. So running is just kind of thing that you do whether you're training for a race or not, but you right. sound like a pretty healthy and fit person. Um, so back, this is, let's go through this timeline of like when you started to notice that something wasn't right and that you were kind of noticing that you had symptoms. What did that look like? Um, the first day I really thought I was sick would have been March 15th. You know, I, I, luckily for me, I was documenting all this stuff back then. So it's, it's pretty easy for me to pull up the dates. Uh, the last time I had worked out, I believe it was Thursday, March 12th. I went to the gym and, or maybe it was Friday the 13th. It was one of those two days. And in hindsight, I may have had some very, very mild symptoms at that point. Uh, Nothing that was affecting my workouts at all, but I do remember having a bit of a a, a runny nose and a really mild cough that could have been, you didn't think it was anything. It wasn't necessarily anything out of the ordinary, but uh, by the 15th of March, uh, I started to develop severe back pain, back pain. I thought maybe I had hurt myself at the gym or something. And when I went to bed that night, I couldn't sleep. The pain got progressively worse until I realized, wait, I'm not, it's not pain I'm dealing with. I have a a fever. And sure enough, you know, it was, uh, it was up over a hundred. At the time, the WHO hadn't released their don't take ibuprofen for, uh, you know, COVID yet. And I didn't, not that I knew I even had it. Uh, So I took some ibuprofen and um, didn't really help. I was up until about 5 a.m. just, you know, trying to sleep, but, but not able to. And it was, it was really just all downhill from there over the next week. Mm-hmm. So at that point, you were just kind of thinking, like, this is a fever or, oh, gosh, like, my body kind of hurts, but it wasn't like I might yeah. have this. Yeah, I mean, corona was really, I think at the time, around that day, and I looked at the historical data, there were maybe... 3,000 cases in the U.S., mm-hmm. and I think the number of deaths was only in the 60s. Obviously, mm-hmm. we've, we've come a, a long and very tragic way since then, mm-hmm. but, you know, I mean, no one knew anyone who had yeah. it. You know, there's, there, was, there was posts going around on social media. Does anybody even know anyone who has mm-hmm. this coronavirus? And we, uh, I mean, the thought was there. But I had had a coworker who had been sent home from work with the flu, and I just assumed, hey, I probably got the flu because that's what people get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have a part-time job where I um, I teach students in China and I teach them English. So for a really long time, it was like, oh, there's this thing over in China happening, but cool, I'm going to go and do anything I want because my life is still the same. And it for a long time, it was like that thing over there, that thing over there. And then even when there were kind of cases here, it was like, oh yeah, like a few people have it, but it still felt very, it was other people yeah. and not like, oh, this is something that could affect me. No, because life, life hadn't really changed by then. I mean, two weeks prior, my wife and I went to C2E2, which is, you know, the big Chicago Comic-Con thing. And there's, there's thousands of people oh, in this huge space. And, and the topic of coronavirus even came up in one of our conversations prior to going there, but it wasn't anything that 
we were fearful of and, and weren't scared to go be in a, you know, in a, in a giant uh, convention hall full of thousands of people either. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. very, very different, such a short time ago too. Right. Yeah. So that was two months ago yep. as we're recording this. And yeah, so life has changed a lot. So you started to notice these symptoms, you're taking ibuprofen, things aren't getting better. Um, then what's happened? What happens? Well, it, it just, it got worse and worse and worse. Uh, the pain got worse, the fevers got worse and the coughing became such an uncomfortable and exhausting thing. You know, when you're, you're coughing mm. constantly, you, you can't rest and you start to feel a lot of anxiety about the coughing itself too. And so I scheduled a, or I, I called a Rush University Medical Center. They had set up a, a COVID hotline at that point. I called it. They recommended I do a televisit with a physician. I did a televisit based on the symptoms that I had had, the fever over 100 and the coughing and also potential exposure, which was my wife works at a hospital and I knew she had come in contact with COVID patients. They uh, scheduled me for a test. And what was really troubling about that whole aspect of it was, you know, I actually, of course we know now, I actually did have COVID, but I may have exaggerated some of my symptoms because I knew what the qualifiers were to get a test. Um, and had I not done that, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I, I just... Worse and worse and worse and worse. Uh, the, do- the doctor prescribed me some drugs, uh, which I picked up, painkillers, fever reducers, stuff for my cough, and those would buy me usually a couple hours of, you know, of comfort. But uh, I stopped eating, you know, mm. just wasn't hungry, mm-hmm. uh, wouldn't get out of bed. Had, and uh, you know, my wife obviously became increasingly increasingly worried about uh, about the whole thing so on was it march 21st that saturday i i um i didn't know if i had it or not by the way i had gotten my testing they had ruled out the flu mm-hmm. and uh i said you know what? i'm going to hospital i don't i don't know what it is even if it, you know, if it's covid i should probably be there if it's not covid uh i still need to go to the hospital because i don't i don't feel I, I feel like something very horrible can happen mm-hmm. i mean in that point you had had a fever for like over a week yeah and that's a really interesting thing about the the covid fevers i think my fever ran for a total of 12 days which seems oh. like an extremely long amount of time uh where, where i would you know if i didn't take uh, and i was given drugs while i was in the hospital every four hours uh, but I, if once they were starting to wear off i'd be back up to 100 203 and it was like 12 days straight it was pretty crazy Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was talking to my mom about this um, earlier today, like the last time that you ha- you had a fever, and she's like, "Oh, it was probably like four or five years ago." And I'm like, "Yeah, like think about having a fever for one day, and you have like the chills, and you like you just feel you're like, am I cold? Am I hot? I don't know. I don't know what to do. And but I just imagine that like tingly feeling on your body, and having that for so many days, like what that takes out of you, you just feel blah constantly." Yeah, you do. And you know, the, we, we talk about the coughing and you know, the lung damage uh, that COVID does. But for me, the fevers and the pain associated with them were 
were just as bad as as the um, as the respiratory symptoms. And it went on. It was pretty early on in my stay at the hospital that I told uh, my nurse. I said, "We got to do something different." Cause I don't think I'm going to make it. You know, and and which is a very it's a very terrifying thought to have to suddenly. You know, like I'm not particularly old. I'm not. I'm not the person that fit in at the time and I think still to the, the people that were at high risk uh, for developing uh, you know for developing horrible COVID uh, symptoms and consequences um, but you know to, to suddenly acknowledge that if something doesn't happen I'm worried that that I may not be able to walk out of this hospital I may just you know, be, be leaving it in a much more horrible way uh, you know on top of being sick it's, it's a very emotionally draining uh, thought to have mm-hmm. yeah you have a family i do i have a you know, your perspective definitely changes a lot when you when you have a child uh, my daughter's two and a half uh, and i and i think that you know, i'm blessed in the respect that she didn't really know what was going on and, and didn't have to endure the stress that mm-hmm. my wife and, and my friends and other family members did mm-hmm. So I found you because of the viral Facebook post that you made. Um, What was the thought process around that? And where, like, at what point had you decided to do that? And obviously you didn't know. It's funny that we use the word go viral when it comes to (laughs) Facebook posts. And that's exactly what happens with these things. So what, at what point did you decide to make that post? Yeah, there's a, there's an ironic double meaning there. Mm -hmm. So the, the 15th, when I started getting sick, I Googled uh, coronavirus symptoms, you know, because of course you hear about it in the news. It's like, Oh no, what if I have this thing that everyone's talking about? And I found very little that was helpful. I found one story, I think it was in the New York, it was either the times or the post uh, where a nurse from Colorado said she had the sniffles and then all of a sudden she had fever and severe body aches and then she was in the hospital. And yeah, it was, it was short, a couple paragraphs. And he said, well, that does sound like, you know, I can't rule out that it could be any other things. And at that point, I didn't think I had COVID. But I thought, well, if I do have it, I should really start documenting it uh, because maybe sometime down the road, this might be helpful to people. So throughout the week, any time that I was drugged up, I would, and, you know, feeling like I could do some writing, I'd, I'd kind of recount my experiences uh, in, on my laptop. And when I decided to go to the hospital, uh, I took my laptop with me. I'm like, well, if it is COVID, yeah. this, is, this is probably the most, um, you know, this is probably the most interesting part of the story is, is getting to the hospital. And while I was being triaged in the hospital is when I got my phone call saying, hey, you've tested positive for, for COVID-19. And I was like, well, that's a good thing I'm here. And you know, I got admitted. But the, the post, obviously, it took on a life of its own. And that was never my intent. Because when I originally posted it, it was, it was a, a private post just to my friends. Because you know, a lot of them, I thought, were being somewhat irresponsible. Uh, a lot of them didn't believe it was real. And it was really a, look, you know, you know me. Um, if you trust me at all or, or you know, anything like that, look, take this seriously. You know, this yeah. is real. I'm in the hospital. And hindsight being what it was, uh, had I known there was going to be an audience of what has now turned out to be millions of people, mm-hmm. I probably would have written it a little bit differently. Um, you know, and it, it was private. 
people started asking right away, hey, can you make this shareable? Can you make this shareable? And I was concerned with uh, privacy because earlier that week, someone on a neighborhood group I was in tried to post the address of somebody who had COVID. They're like, hey, look, this is this person's house. I'm like, why would you do this? I mean, this is this is horrible. There's there's so many insane people out there that may take it upon themselves to to show up. I mean, what what are we trying to do here? Do we want to get the torches and pitchforks? So I was you know, I was concerned. I'm not at home. My family's there. It's not hard to figure out where someone lives. Um, and I, was, I was resistant at first, but people gave some compelling reasons. And finally, I said, "All right, well, we'll make it. We'll make it public." Um, and it's just it's been crazy ever since. Yeah, I'm thinking back to March and what a different life everything was back in March. And so if you went to the hospital March 15th, March 13th? March 21st. 21st, okay. But yeah, I mean, it was that weekend that was St. Patrick's Day and we still saw people going to bars, going about things as usual. I know that Chicago canceled Dying the River, but people were still out and about and it wasn't really this this serious thing. And I remember I shared your post. I saw it and I was like, here's this young guy who's like fit. He's not the seven year old in the nursing home. He's just a regular guy and he had it and he's in the hospital. And it's important for us to see that like any of us who don't have, um, you know, the, the typical illnesses that anyone could get this. And I mean, it's a scary reality, but it's important for us to see that. Yeah, I think so. You know, that that really was the intent uh, with the post is, you know, when I was that sick, um, number one, please take it seriously. But you, know, you suddenly become fearful for anyone else having to go through that. And, um, you know, which is, I'd say the largest part of, of what stayed with me after recovery is still that fear that you know, my wife still works at the hospital mm-hmm. where, where there's a lot of, of COVID positive patients. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm less concerned with my daughter because well, at least so far, it doesn't seem like um, small children are, are having that hard of a time with it. And hopefully it stays that way. But, you know, I mean, who most of us um, have people that are older that we know and care about. You know, my parents are both 65. And they're, they're right in that danger zone as far as contracting. And you know, like I said, that, that was really the whole goal was, was please take this seriously. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, you know, like you said, it, it went viral. And um, the, <laughs> my life has been very different since then, and particularly as far as social media goes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit more about your stay at the hospital and when things started to get better, you're home, um, we're conversing, you're not in the hospital right now. So things did get better. That is the bright side of this. We don't hear a lot of this on the news. Um, So yeah, how did things start to get better? Well, you know, it's, it seems surreal now that I was actually in the hospital for 10 days. That's, That's such a long time. And I really was not doing a whole lot other than and you know, responding to a lot of the social media stuff at first until I, until I started to lack the energy to do so. When I checked in, the doctors, they did uh, x-ray of my lungs, and uh, it turned out I had pneumonia in both lungs, which is pretty common for, for COVID-positive people. And, um, you know, I was, I was admitted to a room, and I was put on a, 
every six hours I would get something for the fever and the pain, which was, which was acetaminophen or Tylenol. And they started giving me Hycodin, which is a, a opioid and syrup form. And one of the off-brand uses for that is to treat cough. So I'd get these drugs every four hours. And this was around the clock. If it's 2 a.m., the nurse would come into my room and, and administer them to me. And they'd usually buy me about three hours of just feeling relatively normal. Like I wasn't coughing, wasn't in pain or breathing. And when they'd start to wear off, uh, you know, at first it, it becomes tolerable, but by the time that six hours was, was uh, up, I was, you know, I felt like I was just, I felt like I was going to die again. And so it was this really, for the few, first few days, it was this constant cycle of just praying for the drugs to come and then, you know, kind of wondering, okay, am I going to be an opioid addict when all this is over? Oh, I told them, I said, you, you got to increase the dose of this one. It's just, it's wearing off too much. And it's not like I, I really want to take these things, but um, I, I'm, you know, I'm getting weaker. I'm not eating. And the hospital actually had really good food choices. They had a very full menu. You get to order all three meals, you know, lots of, of great options. And I'd try to order stuff that I thought, you know, would be appealing and then I'd get it and just have little to no appetite for any of the food. So, you know, I'm losing weight, I'm getting weaker. The doctors told me you're going to get worse before you get better. And uh, that absolutely happened. Cough got worse. I'm hooked up to these monitors all the time. I've got an IV, uh, I've got the oxygen uh, saturation thing on my, on my, on my finger, I think, on my fingers, and, you know, the heart rate monitor and all that stuff. And as I'm there over the first couple of days, I'm continually watching my oxygen saturation level drop, which isn't surprising because they're, they took three or four x-rays of my lungs and they would show them to me, and the pneumonia is getting worse and worse all the time. So it's obvious that my lungs are becoming more and more compromised. And all I was really doing was just taking drugs and waiting to turn the corner you know, for it to it to get better. Um, I, I stopped responding to to people who were writing to me because I just didn't have the energy to do so. You know, um, just sleep a lot. Tried to watch some TV, but know, it, it's it, hospital time was really downtime and and. I didn't have the energy to be bored, truth be told. I just was just kind of there. Yeah. So it, this sounds really monotonous of just, this is another day, another day. And then the doctor said things would get worse until they, before they got better. So right. what did it look like when it did start to get better? So the first thing that, it was really just the fever breaking. And that's what told me that my body had beaten the the virus, yeah. uh, you know, my immune system stopped trying to ramp up antibody production. And that was, I think around my fifth day in the hospital for fifth or sixth, but I was still there for another, another four days because even though the, the virus seemed to be beaten, my lungs were, were kind of a mess and my oxygen, a healthy person, I think is in like 95 to 99 range. My, I was in the low 90s, high 80s. I was put on supplemental, uh, you know, I think three or four days in just to try to keep my, my oxygen up. 
And so anytime I need to, to use the restroom, I would just take it out and you could, you know, I could just see it on the monitor, like drop, 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 drop. Uh, so, you know, you knew, you, I knew I needed it. Um, yeah. Otherwise I, I um, would start to feel lightheaded and, and, you know, my, my fingers, toes and arms would start to tingle due to, due to the lack of the lack of oxygen. But I think it was the Thursday, it was either the Thursday or Friday, it was like the fifth or sixth day I was in there. Uh, I had an incident, even though my fevers had, had stopped at that point, I dropped something on the ground, got off my bed to pick it up, and my oxygen level just like crashed in oh, the wow. low 80s, and I had this this horrible coughing fit. So, um, yeah, I, I hit the emergency button on on the, what is it, the thing that calls the nurse, whatever it was, the alert thing. And, you know, the person at the desk pops in right away and it takes me like three or four attempts to get out. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Oh my God. Uh, I just can't say anything because yeah. due to the coughing and just not having air. And there were seven or eight people in, in my room immediately. Um, you know, some of them trying to make sure that I, that I didn't expire and the rest of them trying to assess what my condition was. Um, you know, I, I, pass out when I get shot, when I get blood drawn. And unfortunately I had two, like two blood draws a day, every day. And I think I may be over that by now. I, I got poked so much, but when, when my oxygen crashed and they were trying to assess everything, they want, they do an arterial gas uh, measurement where they measure the, the oxygen gas levels in your arterial blood. And an arterial blood draw is nothing like a regular blood draw. They they literally stick a pin in your artery. Mm. I think I'm gonna have a scar for that, mm. from that for life on my wrist. And it's horribly painful, and um, you can't move. And I remember having the thought, I'm like, I don't know if this is actually worse than not being able to breathe because it hurts so bad. <sighs> it was just, and they. I don't know why they had to do it twice within like five minutes, but they did. Um, and at that point, you know, once I, once I became stabilized, they turned my oxygen up from uh, all the way to like six or eight liters where I think room air is two liters of oxygen. So, you know, they, they were really trying to make sure I got enough. And the doctor said, I need to go to the ICU. Uh, if my oxygen levels didn't go up, then... Uh, they were going to have to put, intubate me, put me in a medically distant coma and intubate me uh, that night. So you know, I went to the ICU. When, you, when you're starting to question your own mortality and you're worried you're not going to get better and someone says they have to put you in a coma, it's just, just like, wow, what if I, uh, you know, what if the last thing that I ever remember is, is you know, passing out due to being under anesthesia and being put in this coma? And that was just the most horrifying thought for me to deal with. And like I said, at this point, I'm getting better. The doctors had expressed optimism that I'm yeah. going to be going home in a day or two. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, I'm, I'm headed to the ICU. Obviously, that's, that wasn't going to happen at that point. Um, luckily, didn't, didn't have to get intubated. You know, my, uh, it, it looked like just a, a fluke thing that happened probably due to me, you know, bending over. I may have just cut my oxygen supply off accidentally. Um, made it out of the ICU the next evening, and three days after that, I got discharged. You know, we were we were really at that point waiting to see if uh, 
my lungs could, could get enough oxygen that I, that I could go home. Mm-hmm. Wow. So many ups and downs there. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And then, so you came home and we know that that doesn't mean, great, go back to where you life, everything's fine. What did it look like with you coming home with your family, um, with where you're staying? How did that work? Well, there was a definite fear of infecting someone. The doctors gave me some guidelines, and I think they were three days after your last fever, which which would be the last real symptom, or 14 days after your initial symptoms, whichever is longer, that you should be able to interact with people without fear of, of making them sick. But I'm scared to death of this thing at this point. My wife's terrified. And we made the decision that I was gonna, we were gonna isolate. Uh, I, I'm fortunate to have a very large house and a fully furnished basement with its own shower and bedroom and everything, and a separate entrance as well. So we decided that I was gonna spend two weeks in isolation, which is probably excessive, but you know, that's just, I didn't, you know, I didn't wanna take any chances if, I, if one of them were to catch it for me. I don't, you know, I don't think I could mentally process that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I took to living in my basement, but it, it was clear I wasn't back to normal. I, I would just fall asleep at random times during the day. Uh, you know, I, I tried to start working right away and I was able to, but not for more than like an hour or so at a time sitting at my desk. I just, I would just be worn out. Yeah. Um, and then just the whole trying to navigate that way of life while you're sick in your own house avoiding your family members. You know, I don't have a kitchen down here. And, um, so my wife would you know, make food or order food and just leave it on the steps for me. And I go up into the stairwell to get it. I mean, it's just, it's, it's so, it's so bizarre to think about now the what we were doing. Uh, but uh, within the first week, I started to notice definite improvement, not anywhere close to normal, but uh, you know, I, I was, um, feeling less tired and uh, people that would talk to me on the phone could hear it in my voice. That it was just, I would, it would sound a lot better. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the next week I was back to, to working full time. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, yeah. And then, you know, two weeks after the two weeks went by, I, I reunited with my family, which was still, it was very difficult to touch anyone for a while. You know, I mean, by all all the medical advice I had been given by by medical professionals, and there wasn't any issues, but it still felt radioactive. Mm. You know, I was I was putting people at danger in danger by being around them. So I just I, there was a, a lot of just being uncomfortable. You know, I want to hug my daughter, and I would make myself hug my daughter, and then feel this enormous guilt about, oh, no, am I being irresponsible and endangering her life? And, you know, you can, you can logically say, no, you're not. You're, you know, you, there's no way you don't have those symptoms. Um, you're so far removed from it. You, you, you know, the virus should be eradicated from your body. But, but, you know, there's a difference between thinking that and then feeling it. And I, for, for weeks afterwards, I just, I still felt like I needed to stay away from everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so hard to I think about you in the hospital, and even though the doctors and nurses are there, 
you're by yourself. You're basically by yourself and no one can come to visit you. And then you get better and you come home and still no one can come to visit you. And we're humans. Like humans, we like being around people, whether you're an introvert or not, we want to be around people. And that was one of the scariest things, even though you're better being around people, this scary thing of what if you get someone sick? Um, Yeah. You know, it's, people keep telling me and it's very flattering that they do. It's like, Oh, you need to write a book. You need to write a book about your experience. And I, you know, I, I don't think I have a whole lot more to say. I mean, I made two fairly long posts and I, I did a follow up last week. Uh, the, the much more interesting thing to me is what's happening now with, with our society. And, you know, you mentioned where people, you know, we, we like to be around others. We have social needs and, you know, I feel fortunate that, yeah, while we're all isolating or sheltering in place to an extent, um, I do have my wife and I do have my daughter. And, you know, I've got plenty of friends and, and employees that they're home alone by themselves. And, and unless it's an essential trip to the grocery store or something, you know, it's I've observed it taking toll on people's mental health. And, um, you know, I was a guy that got sick. If I post what I post a week later, I don't think, you know, anyone will have ever heard of me because at that point there were were a lot more deaths and it it really was starting to ramp up right about the time I went to the hospital. So is it interesting? It, it's interesting the extent that it was an early case, but unfortunately for, for hundreds of thousands of people, my experiences has become the norm. Uh, it's, it's not so unique anymore. And, I said, just dealing with the, you know, you, you talked about me being in isolation and even though I was back home, I, I was still isolated with my family. And you think about how many people who, who don't, you know, who live by themselves are still going through mm. that two months later. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm getting a little stir crazy. Don't get me wrong. I'd love to go out to, you know, to a bar and just have a drink or, or, or hang out with my friends. But at least I have, you know, my, my family, uh, to keep me company. And it's, um, I feel very lucky as of that. And I feel very, very sad for people that don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about getting back to running. So that was the second post that I saw, um, randomly I clicked on it last week and I was like, wow, he's like, running to be well enough to run again. What is, what did that kind of look like? (laughs) Yeah. I I didn't really know what to expect. Yeah. There hasn't been a a time in my life. I don't think where I couldn't roll out of bed and just run an eight minute mile. And in in eight minutes, don't get me wrong. is not, um, it's not like a a blazingly fast time, but, but you have to be in reasonably good shape. Okay. So you have to just, just to go out there and do that. And so, um, you know, from everything I'd read from my doctors, from what my doctors had told me, it may be a, a few months before my lungs were back to normal, or I, I, you know, my lungs could be permanently compromised in, in some fashion. So I wasn't really sure what to expect because by the time I decided to go out running, I, I really felt normal. I, I feel normal now. You know, if I'm not, if I'm just doing my everyday stuff, you know, things around the house, working in front of my computer. It's, it's a fairly sedentary lifestyle outside of, you know, me going and exercising. I'd say I feel like I did prior to having COVID. So I went outside, um, 
nice day, start running. And immediately I could tell I hadn't ran for a while just because you, you feel these like rattles or, or in your joints. Like, like when you hit the pavement, things just, it doesn't feel right. It hurts more than it used to. You're not used to the shock of, uh, or, or the impact of the running. So right away, I knew that that was, that was different, but I kind of wrote that off to just look, you haven't even run in two months. It's, it's what it's going to be like. Um, I physically, like I could tell I wasn't carrying as much weight, uh, in my stomach or gut. I lost 20 pounds over that, over that month period from the time that I, you know, first began isolating in my house, um, to the time that I, I got out of the hospital. Um, and which I, yeah, I mean, I wanted to lose some weight, not quite like that, but, uh, uh, I, I mean, I could feel that definitely like, like I, I just didn't have as much mass that I was moving around. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I started off at a, at a, a reasonably normal when what I felt like normal pace was for, for me, but you know, within a quarter mile, half mile, it was, it was clear that um, this was going to be much more difficult. And it wasn't because I was out of shape. There was, I was feeling something very, very different with my lungs, like mm-hmm. actual pain, uh, in my lungs, um, which I'm, I'm, the doctors told me was just due to the parts that were still inflamed, and uh, a sudden desire to stop <laughs> much, much sooner. I mean, you know, I, I think most people who would consider themselves active runners, if you go, you you can go out and not maybe not sprint, but you can run a hard quarter mile or half mile, and that's just something you can do. You know, you, you'll probably be out of breath, but uh, I felt like I needed to quit, um, and my pace became noticeably slower and slower and slower as I, as I continued to run. And you you start getting these thoughts of what if it's like this forever? Mm. Am I ever going to get back to, to a level where I'm, I'm happy, whether it be for my age or because I've, I've set some sort of personal record or I've accomplished some goal I've set for myself. Am I going to have to start lowering my standards here if I want to, if I want to continue running? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I actually, I, before uh, this morning I got up and it was sunny and I went for a, I went for a run. Um, I don't know how much of it is that I'm, I'm getting used to it or if I'm, if my body just needed a kick and it's, yeah. it's starting to pick up where I left off. But I ran this morning, I ran like an eight fifteen mile, which I was very happy with. Um, but that, that first run, it was something like, you know, my first mile was over nine minutes and my last one was 10 even. And, you know, uh, I mean, 10 minute mile, if that's what I have to do the rest of my life. Okay. Then I'll run. You know, it's, it's really shifted my focus a lot more from the goal to the process. Mm. I'm learning to, I'd say if you tell me, you know, five years ago that, um, Hey, you're, you're only going to be able to run a a nine or 10 minute mile. And it's not to, not to belittle anyone who's, who, who runs nine or 10 minute miles. And I think the important, I mean, I know plenty of people that are way faster than I am. The important thing is that you just try to take care of yourself. But, you know, if you were to tell me five years ago that that was going to be my life, I would have, I would have been upset about that. Mm-hmm. No, I want to run faster. I wanted, you know, I wanted to do that 20 minute 5k. 
I still want to do it. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see if that happens, but I'm much more at peace now with being a runner for the sake of the running, not the end game. Um, and I think it's going to take a lot less, a lot, a lot of stress off of me when it, when it comes to that and just allow me to enjoy the experience of, you know, being outside if I'm running outside or knowing that I'm, I, I'm doing something to better my, my health as opposed to, okay, I control my breathing. Um, I feel this pain is this pain that I should push through or is this pain that's going to do some type of damage. And it's just all this, this analytical stuff that, that you do when you're trying to, to set these records or trying to better yourself. So, you know, in that way, I'm, I'm still going to have the goals but yeah, I'm just, I'm a lot more at peace with the process now than I was before. Wow. Yeah. That's an amazing takeaway. Um, what do you want people to know? So I still hear things like, um, this is just the flu people, people get the flu. Um, and, um, you know, it's not that big of a deal or, you know, we should be late. We should be allowed to go, to our restaurants, you know, our freedom. What do you want people to know and take away from what happened over the last few months? Wow. Well, I mean, it's, it's pretty easy for me to say that it's not just the flu, right? you know, that it is real, that it can kill you. I, I was legitimately concerned that I was going to die from this. But, um, you know, I, I get it. We, we talk about people, people talk about all the time about not trusting the media. And as as I've come out of this and um, had a chance more to reflect on, you know, I'm not worried about about getting COVID. I'm worried about family members getting. I'm not, I'm not worried about it. Um, you know, in, in in some probably not healthy way. I feel pretty invincible when I'm outside right now. You know, I've been antibody tested twice. I'm working with a couple of places to help develop quick response tests. Um, uh, well, when I say working with, I'm giving them fluids and they're doing, <laughs> they're doing all the work, but, uh, um, you know, we're at home right now. We've just got a lot of time on our hands and, and it's not time that we feel good about having everyone is really stressed. And we, you know, you hear that all these things about how manipulative the media is and not to trust it. And what I've observed is it's not that people don't trust the media, they don't trust the things that they want to disagree with. You know, there's some conflicting pressures out there right now. If you're worried about going back to work and earning a living and taking care of your family, if that's your primary overriding concern, I've noticed that people tend to be, tend to find a lot more fault with the stories that say, no, this is dangerous and you have to stay inside. Whereas if you're worried about getting the illness or family members dying, uh, they tend to disregard the stories that say, look at this country, they didn't have shelter in place and they're fine. And so it's, it's really, you know, I'm, when I got out of the hospital, it's kind of a morbid thought. My, my boss asked me, he was like, Oh, do you have a will? And I said, Oh no, I don't have a will. And as an attorney, I, I know that I should have a will, but there's so many people that don't take the time to, um, 
to have one written because it forces you to mm. acknowledge the fact that you're going to die. And it's not something we, that's, that's something we, we don't like thinking about. And I can come up with numerous reasons why I don't need a will right now. I'm 42. I'm unlikely to die anytime. Like I'm statistically unlikely to die anytime soon, be it by anything. But you know, I mean, I could walk out in the street and God forbid get hit by a bus and then it would be bad for my family. That I don't have one. And so people tend to resist the things that takes them uh, to the, that where the conclusion is something that they don't like. You know, uh, if the conclusion is that COVID is going to, uh, COVID is a health hazard. We all need to stay inside. I'm worried about my job. Well, I'm just, I'm automatically going to be resistant and distrustful of that news source. And so that's, yeah, that, that's a lot of what I'm observing and people are just, it's so toxic out there and people are so mean and I feel, you know, I feel kind of upset about it, but I feel bad because no one is rooting for everybody to die. Mm, you know, yeah. it's not, it's not that. And, and the, the people that are having disagreements, the, the vast majority of them are not bad people. We're just, we're all struggling to to get through this time in life and we're running out of money and we're you know our mental health is is Mm -hmm. suffering i mean the amount of you know suicides and and things that happen due to depression those those things are going up while while we're dealing with this and so you know if i had one thing to say it would be as opposed to going on the attack and going on the offensive at least before you say anything, try to understand mm. that people aren't bad. They're just struggling. And and stress brings out the worst in us. You know, when my wife and I have been stressed about, you know, anything, be it finances or our child or or jobs or moving, we fight more. You know, we're just we're just worse people when we're stressed. Um so you know if if I had any advice to give it'd, it'd be you know how I feel about it. It's real. It can kill you. There's so much gray out there that I can't 100% say, no, these are the right actions to take as far as social distancing and, and, you know, isolation and quarantine. And, and that's, you know, the root of so many of these arguments too. There's, there's a lot of gray. There's tons of conflicting information. There's tons of fake information and people are embracing what supports the conclusion they want to read. They want to reach the the government is going to make the laws. You may disagree with them. You may agree with them. You probably are going to have to follow them. Try to be kind to your fellow humans who are also dealing with something very stressful. You know, I, we will come out of this at some point and it may not be without consequences. It may not be without some very horrible consequences for people. I mean, this is just a horrible situation, but you know, try to take the time before you just, snap back at someone to understand it's not coming from a place of evil. Mm -hmm. It's just coming from a place of survival and stress. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Huge. Thank you for that. Michael, thank you so much again for being on the podcast. I wish you good running, um, recovery, hopefully enjoying summer in Chicago. Thank you. Thank you. You as well. I appreciate you having me.